Hi, I'm Salim Reshamwala, host of a podcast called Far Flung from TED. In each episode, I'll take you to a new place across the globe to get lost in a new vibe and tap into surprising ideas. From tiny suspension bridges in the mountains of Nepal to journalists who've taken the city buses to deliver the news in Caracas. Let's tap into what the world is thinking on Far Flung. Stay tuned after this episode to hear the trailer. Every artist, you know, wants more than anything else to be recognized. But once it's recognized, you go so quickly into the fathead syndrome. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, artist Richard Tuttle talks about what he's up to as he enters his ninth decade. Life is its own reward, but how do you live successfully your entire life? Hi, I'm Young Mi Moon. I'm Mihir Desai. And I'm Felix Oberholzer G. And together we host After Hours, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective. We're friends and colleagues at Harvard. And on the show, we discuss news at the crossroads of business, society, and culture. Join us each week as we catch up after work and see what's trending, share our thoughts, and disagree with each other. Sometimes a lot. <laughs> Is Apple losing its mojo? What's behind the industry, behind the chip shortages we're all struggling with? Who's winning the streaming wars? And should you fear inflation? So check out After Hours wherever you listen to podcasts. Richard Tuttle is one of the master artists of our time. His work has revolutionized the landscape of contemporary art and includes painting, drawing, sculpture, bookmaking, printmaking, installation, and poetry. Over the course of his 60-plus year career, he has constantly challenged the constraints of material, medium, and method. He draws beauty out of humble materials and creates art that simultaneously exists in the present moment, reflects the fragility of the world, and allows for individual experiences of perception. His work has been exhibited in hundreds of galleries and museums all over the world and is included in important collections everywhere. He is represented by Pace Gallery, and an exhibit of his objects is currently on display at the Bard Graduate Center in New York City. He's been called a conceptual artist and a post-minimalist artist, but the labels aren't nearly as interesting as the art itself. Often minimal, innately witty, rigorously intelligent, and always deeply moving. Richard Tuttle, welcome to Design Matters. It's an absolute honor to be talking with you today. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you. You, you lift my spirits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. You lift mine. Richard, is it true that you believe that there are only two kinds of artists in the world? Those that can use the color green and those who can't. <laughs> oh, 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 that's that's fun. Um, I guess we we should start with a kind of base where you could speak about a, a New York artist. Okay. There has been a strong drift anti-nature 
which speaks about life in New York. You know, when when it rains, we go out, we show up, you know, or when it snows, I mean, we we don't play around with nature. You know, we were all out to defeat nature. And so artists who make art along those lines would never be able to use green because green is suggests. I once asked my great uh, friend and mentor, Agnes Martin, why she didn't use green, ever use green in her painting. And her response was because it would remind people of nature. Interesting. I have a whole slew of questions for you about Agnes, but I want to get to your upbringing a little bit first and then talk about your friendship with her and her influence. Uh, You were born in Rahway, New Jersey. You were raised in Roselle. Your dad was an electrical engineer and your mom had hoped to go to art school, but she didn't. Um, Why wasn't she able to go? The Depression. Great Depression. Your mom seems to have lived a life full of art. Nevertheless, I read about how you had a long kitchen with a rather long kitchen table. And on one end, she might be cooking, but on the other end, there was always some sort of project she was working on with paper mache or puppets or any number of things. Would you say that she's the first person that introduced you to art? I think it's one of these cases of uh, getting it uh, together, you know, or connecting some dots. Because when I was very young, I had a, um, you know, I was the kind of type of person who probably is just born with a philosophical turn of mind. And so I, I asked, you know, as many of that type do, or they must say, well, what is this all about? Why am I here? What is, you know, what's, what's good? What's bad? What's, you know, what's the whole thing? And so, and probably that uh, those questions gained intensity with the fact that there was a war going on. I think we can't underestimate how important our early, earliest experiences are in this world. I didn't know what art was or uh, what it meant to be an artist or, or there was no real art in our home. Your mom had been an only child and had suffered quite a lot of boredom as she grew up. And you've talked about how she vowed that her kids would never be bored in the same way, which is why she had all these projects in the house. But you've talked about how you overheard someone when you were a young man in school saying that they were bored and went home to ask her what the word meant as you had never heard it before. Um, She must have been a really fun person to be around. Yes. uh, Also, Complex. One of my issues at the moment is how we sustain these unsustainable opposites. I think that's in my work. It's always been about the intense interest in a stoppage uh, in the fact that, you know, we know nothing stops. We don't stop. The world doesn't stop. You know, you turn your back and the plant has grown another leaf. I mean, there are just so many questions uh, that come when you deal with stop where motion uh, is a is an expression, is a form in movies and videos and so on, uh, where we can express this constant uh, motion we we have, but uh, and it it's uh, can be very necessary, uh, but it still doesn't to me uh, interest me as much as the, the mystery of of the, of the stop. Does water ever stop? Part of the interest that I have in your work is 
my fascination with things that start oh. the origins of creativity, the origins of oh. consciousness, of ingenuity, of obstacles. Those are the things that, that I tend to be really sort of endlessly fascinated with, okay. which is why my podcast is so much about how somebody begins uh, uh -huh, the journey uh -huh. of their life and how that ends up influencing how they become who they become. Yeah, and in my pantheon of touch points, uh, the color orange you know, represents a beginning. And whenever I do a, a work of orange, it informs me that this is where a beginning, like a new chapter or a new, a new work or a new direction. And if you begin, there has to be an origin. And I don't like to be held to one side or the other in that question. <laughs> so it's, it's a kind of bittersweet thing. But, you know, again, art can handle that type of thing. And I don't know much else can. You, you've been an artist for your entire life. There are really very few people that could say that that's all they've ever done is make art. And you've made art in so many different genres, so many different categories. Do you remember that first experience of being creative? Do you have any sense of when you realized that your role on this earth was to make art? Yes, because of COVID rehab, uh, taken up singing. And uh, it's been about two years, and I have an excellent, excellent teacher who brought me to the point where I could do a recital. And Wow, uh, I should have asked you to sing. I didn't know any of this. <laughs> know, yeah, well, <laughs> you can have it. I'll do, I'll do, I'll do anything. Yeah. As you very well pointed out, this focus has been on you know, visual arts, you know, the visual part, side of things. Uh, but in doing this recital, I actually uh, went on stage identifying myself as, as an artist of song. And I would, in my younger days, would have not credited, not given so much credit to songwriting and singing of songs, performances and so on, because I, I just didn't think it was up to the level of the visual arts. But when I gave this recital, in the middle of my song, my right arm began shaking. I didn't know if people in the audience could see it or not. But as an artist, performer, I knew, you know, and that sort of instinct where you can just turn that uh, into emotion for the sake of the audience. You know, that's, it's all for the sake of the audience. I mean, it kind of uh, proved to me that these questions of, you know, what is an artist? Who is the artist? How are these things known? They're, they don't, uh, you know, that doesn't matter how many shows you make or how many... Uh, how much success or how many museum collections you're in, it doesn't ever come to the, the answer of what it is. Uh, it's something about uh, uh, the head and the body relation that as a singer, I completely learned myself as an artist in my, bo my body. And, you know, the way the song can be remembered 
in front of an audience, for example, that's not in your head. I can't possibly do that in my head, but in, in, if it's coming from my body, I, I can and I love it. And it's like a release. It's a kind of freedom that I never got out of my head. You know? In the way that you are now approaching learning how to sing, it seems like a very different approach than the way you learned how to make art. Uh-huh. Can you talk a little bit about how you began to understand what you wanted to do when you were making art? You didn't go to school for art. I mean, you did have an art education at Trinity, but it wasn't an art school. No. And you created your own art education while you were at Trinity. Mm. After you graduated Trinity, I understand you were still hoping to go to art school and also didn't want to get drafted. So you applied to the University of Chicago. You got in and your dad helped you get a job as a bellhop at the Drake, one of the biggest hotels in Chicago at the time. And you were all ready to go, as you put it, to put on your little bellhop cap and work for tips. But you ended up also getting in at the Cooper Union and going there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I understand that the euphoria of going there lasted about a week. <laughs> and then you decided that uh, you were going to leave. What Talk about that time and, and what that was like for you. This was a Camelot period, and um, things were moving very fast. You know, suddenly the world uh, became useful, and it needed expression. And um, when I, I was at Trinity, I did the yearbook. And in those days, we pasted up each page, and we used a kind of high enamel gloss uh, paper for that because it photographed well and so on. And when I got to New York, I still had some of that paper. I've kept it. And then I began making these three-inch paper cubes, which I felt were my first real beginning of my, my work. They were of interest because they took the cube and penetrated it in different ways. So each work was a unique and different penetration of the cube than any others. And they were very lightweight. Uh, you could hold them in your hand. But this notion of you know when you begin your art or how that happens. For example, Velasquez was already painting great work when he was 16. I think those juices, you know, those forces in us, you know, will, can begin in teenage years. And so those cubes, when I say that was the beginning of my work, going back to the idea I'm a New York artist, that was the beginning of the New York work that is still, and quite mysteriously so, part of my ongoing work. You know, when you emerge, uh, it's a kind of uh, almost primitive, ritualistic thing. You emerge, that point stays part of you for as long as you continue. And my emergence point happened to be, I think, uh, part of of an archaic expression, you know, through the cycles of time and so on. the archaic will come back and different guises. But it was very important in my work that I saw or felt that the historic cycle ended with uh, minimal 
art, and that uh, that was um, it was part of my side to to start a new cycle. One of the reasons I like going on with creative work is because it, as a as a genre, we know so little about it. You know what what it is, how it works, how it what happens, how does an individual relate to it? Is it part of them or part of some parallel existence or, you know, mm. I don't know, I don't know any of it, you know, but those things can only be known through having a body of work as data. So, I don't know, part of my service is to create that body of data. You know. From what I understand, I think you met Agnes Martin by just calling her on the telephone, and you became lifelong friends. Yeah, um, I think I do perhaps have a privileged understanding of her work, and which uh, most people don't. So if I'm invited to uh, an interview or to a symposium or something, and, and I, I will go there and, and try to say what I feel remains to be said about or hasn't been said before about Agnes's work, because to me, it it's keeps developing, too. I'm always learning more about it. I'm currently involved in doing a show of Alexander Calder for Los Angeles, and it's sort of the same where I, I feel his work uh, has not been shown with the understanding I think it should be shown with. I mean... With contemporary art, you you have to be ahead of the times. I mean, that's not that's the, that's the rule, you know. And so, by the time you're dead, you know your your ideas are there. Are lots of your ideas that you can't um, manage, you know, and and uh, and process to the, the public uh, benefit. And so, somebody else has to do it. And and, and, the, and you know because. You might think oh, then it would be like an art historian or so, but art historians have a completely different uh, uh, road than an artist would. So, Why do you think that uh, Calder's work isn't as appreciated as it should be now? He you know, was a kind of artist who was motivated by a need to speak. He had something he really wanted to say. And, of course, it was about him himself. And um, the work came out in ways where it could be charming and dazzling or easy to access in terms of its motion and so on. But in terms of what he was saying about himself and the, the world and art and all these, these topics, he hasn't been successful in that sense. And I think he himself... Is a fascinating creative talent because he did go to the end of the branch. You know, he really did go to the end, like like Van Gogh or Pollock or you know some of these these people, but uh, who you don't get back. You know, who can't find their way back. You know, but he did could find his way back. But the sacrifice was that somehow the world doesn't know what he was saying. You know, or uh, I mean it's. And also the importance of his influence, the the kind of uh, spaces that he achieved in sculpture went into the abstract expressionists and, and painted spaces. If you realize that each one is better for understanding that uh, and how art 
passes the boundary of, I mean, for example, my work, if it's sometimes, you know, painting, sculpture, drawing, it's really about the passages, what happens between drawing, when drawing becomes painting, or painting becomes drawing, or painting becomes sculpture. And so that's what's exciting. What do you think happens in those experiences, in those moments? Our spirits can rest. I think in in our lives, the, the civilization that we've built, which is great, but we haven't figured out how our spirits can have rest. What's the longevity of our civilization if we don't provide our the spirits who are in intrinsically they are that civilization and they can't rest you know and this this is i i see that on the street i see that on people's faces and and so on and to me it's because art you know part of art contemporary art is choosing the subject matter you know what it is you're going to and that in contemporary art it almost matters more ever than in history because there are so many possibilities I mean, I feel naturally aligned uh, in terms of my choice of subject matter with Calder's choice of subject matter. And there's how many generations between or so on. But but I'm really looking forward to the show, uh, just offering an entrance to these analogous, what, expressions fulfilled through need, you know, of just two artists, any two artists. It doesn't matter who. Agnes Martin helped you get a job at Betty Parsons Gallery, which ultimately gave you your first show. But you also met a lot of the New York artists at that time. You met Ed Reinhardt. You met Mark Rothko. Um, Talk about the influence that Ed Reinhardt had on you. I know that you've said that if Agnes Martin was sort of the mother of your work, Ed Reinhardt was the father. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, my position, as I as I see it, is probably concocted because you know when I started my work, I felt the great achievement in American art and recent art was the abstract expressionists, and that part of my work, as I saw that, was to show my respect for that art, you know, because other forms of isms, you know, had come along by that point, and I was not so interested in them as I was in the uh, ism, abstract expressionism. And the way I handled that was I felt that I couldn't, what is it, um, you know, it's almost like maybe the image comes from a, a marathon race or something like that, where, you know, where you can't, or a horse race, where you can't really get your stride until you move in front of the pack, something like that. So what I had to do was uh, make something, achieve something that was equal to what they achieved, you know, as, a, as that group. And I think at that point, let's say the critics and the art historians were not as close to the jugular as an artist had to be, because talking about them as a group had to be supported for many reasons. But what I saw was that all of them were involved in using time in their art the same way you would use a piece of steel in a sculpture, the same way you would use the color red in a painting, you know, that physically. And so whether it was Pollock, he recorded time with all these strips, or Mark Rothko, he's, you look at a Rothko, you each 
time you look at focus on one of the colors, it's a time. And the overall painting is this relation, particular relation in time. He was like the last one to fulfill that work. And the black painting, which was, you know, the initial experience where you see black, that's A. And then you, the time it takes you for the painting to show that it's actually colors, red, blue, green, is the art of the painting. And that the B, I mean, you experience it as space in a sort of emotional way. But in a, in a measured physical way, you experience it as time. So the achievement in terms of art, I mean, yes, uh, is that a special definition of art? Probably so. But there have been very few times in the history of the world where people have cared enough to create a conception of art uh, in the first place, you know, and then project a goal for, out of that and then achieve that goal on top of it. I mean, my God, you know, like, this is amazing. I felt I had to equal all of, all of that in my own work. And so I think in the, uh, in the cloth octagonals, which, you know, they have no top, no bottom, no front, no back. They can be on the floor, they can be on the wall. And they are, each one is a specific statement. It's something I created to answer my needs, to uh, express myself. Well, what I'm so struck by, especially in your early work, was how much criticism you got. I mean, Betty Parsons often said that she'd never dream of giving an artist who was younger than 35 a show, but she gave you one at 24. (laughs) And you were then included in a survey show in the Whitney in 1975 that provoked such dramatic reactions Mm. from observers and critics that it ultimately cost the curator, Marsha Tucker, her job for including you. Mm. One of the critics, Hilton Kramer Mm. of the New York Times, he eviscerated your work Mm. um, Mm. in a scathing column in the New York Times. And he stated, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe's dictum, less is more. In Mr. Tuttle's work, less is unmistakably less. Mm. One is tempted to say where art is concerned, less has been never as (laughs) less than this. First of all, yeah. What what was so, I mean, all great work provokes some type of uncertainty and vulnerability and, and fear. But yeah. what was so controversial about the work that resulted in, in, in Kramer's disdain, utter disdain? Yeah, well, I've actually wondered that a lot myself because I conceive that my work is for everyone. But clearly it isn't. You know? so, well, it so, wasn't at that point. Whatever the romance of the life of the artist, it's real. You know, it's, yeah. it's no, uh, it's a life, it's a life and death, life and death thing. Now, all these years later, all these decades later, the Wall Street Journal has stated you are the most influential and the most misunderstood contemporary artist. Mm. Um, In the time since that faithful Whitney show, the curator, Marsha Tucker, went on to create the new museum in New York City. And since Mm. then, the L.A. Times art critic Christopher Knight said Mm. this about the same art that Kramer crucified. The work collectively ranks as Richard Tuttle's most distinctive contribution to art history. Mm. So, so how do you make sense of of reviews? How do you make sense of criticism? How do you how do you sort of keep yourself both sort of separated from it 
but mm-hmm. also cognizant of it. Well, this this is part of why it's it's such an extraordinary uh, field uh, because every artist, you know, wants more than anything else to be recognized. But once it's recognized, you go so quickly into the fat head syndrome you know, mm. that kills the, the work because you don't do the work. The fat head cannot do the kind of work that uh, is worthy of recognition. You know? Yeah. And yet it's also, yes, you know, to be aggressive, you know, to matter, to have a, a profile that means something to the world. On the one hand, on the other hand, none of that matters at all. You know, like the work is the only thing that, that matters. People have criticized me, uh, I think correctly, of being for being too uh, intense to turn it up to a point, an uh, intensity level that, you know, can't be followed. Why? Well, for me, one of the definitions of art that's I've been thinking about a lot lately is is that it's it's that thing which you can care so much about. Whatever you can care to your maximum possibility, that's what art is. What can we do, you know, or what what is given life and the magnificent, the wonders of life, what can you what can you say? What can you do? What can you think? You know, and also emotions, you know, you can only process them. They could happen to you 50 years ago, but you can't process them, you know. And so what do you do in the meantime? Life is, I've said this, that life is its own reward. But how do you live uh, successfully your entire life? I find, you know, Asian uh, wisdom shows that life is developmental, that you, you first have to learn life, you know, whatever it is for you, you know, and then you then you have to stand out and you have to think for yourself, you have to, in a way, cancel what we learned. And then when that's done, then you have to make a world for yourself. That's the stage I'm in at the moment. So many people will pass away because retirement is boring, but retirement, I mean, it can be also for some people the best time of life. And so, you know, it's to have a life that equals life, you know, in a way you have to succeed in each phase of life. And that requires reversing gears, you know, and and going, you know, to sending the course in the opposite direction and so on. So all that is... uh, uh, to me, is analogous to art strategies that to live the kind of life what I find equals life uh, is to make the kind of art is the same as make the kind of art that I think equals art. You know, and thank you, Mr. Kramer, for pointing that out. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you you've talked about how you feel like our culture today is very anti-hand that it's better to work with, that people think it's better to work with the head and everybody's aspiring to go to college so they don't have to work with their hands, yet hands are a real source of intelligence and you divorce yourself from a part of your intelligence without them. I find many people need a uh, a mirror to the world. You know, the, we're, we're living in this thing, you know, and, and uh, things change, like there's a current that blows through humanity one day to the next. And then the color green looks good this day and the color purple looks good <laughs> this day. I mean, we're like part of this 
fluidity and the uh, that I I think that's part of my enjoyment of of life is to sense the these flows these changes that take place and so you know the index finger has you could say replace the hand the the hand mm, I love that <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of uh, funny but when you know when i look at my index finger i mean anybody you look at your index finger you see how much it's it's used but it is the finger we point with and your interest in the beginning for example beginning is rich uh, because it's that place from which we point some mm. what, the potential in art is to bring things from the darkest side you know and from our our doubts and from utter chaos and and uh, you know I've, I've actually identified the most frightening thing for human beings is the absolute absence of light mm. and that because even you know they say some people say our, our bodies uh, produce cells there are cells in our bodies that produce light um, the same thing as light and so absolute no light means those cells cannot produce light either and that's like that is like true horror you know for us you know and but that has to be part of part of you know in order to find rest for the spirit those fears those enormous fears have to be placated and again i think that's the role for me the role of the great artist is to is to placate those fears you know and, and give us our spirits rest you know and life you know, hats off to anyone willing to contribute. You know, and, uh, thank you, Debbie, for <laughs> for what you're doing because it's, it gets out there. I mean, I can't I can't get it out there like like you can. Well, thank you. Before I let you go, I do want to ask you about your current show. You just closed a show, a beautiful show of sculptures at Pace, absolutely stunning. Um, you have a show up now at Bard Graduate Center, and it's titled. What is the object? And the show features never-before-exhibited work, a personal collection of what might seem to be ordinary objects, um, furniture that you've designed to best display the objects. Some of these objects include duck decoys, a fragment of a Dutch ceramic, various bowls, various cloths and textiles, coins, what you refer to as the most beautiful camera, a Prussian cast iron urn, a set of plastic copies of flatware from Moss from the 1980s, which, man, I'd love to get my hands on, which you annotate as great design, a policeman's summer motorcycle hat said to be from Chicago, in which you find the bulge of the head extraordinary to look at when fitted to a hat like this, as well as glassware, plasticware, folk art, cookie cutters, and more. It's mm. a beautiful show. What was the motivation of doing a show about specific things you collect? Ooh, wow, uh, excellent question. I really would love to help people viscerally feel what it is to be alive in our culture, you know, to be here and in this place. And because I think uh, it's beautiful in the first place, but it also. Uh, because of, of the singing, my singing, uh, I've uh, <clears throat> gotten into uh, Stephen Foster, mm. who uh, people say is the father of American pop music. 
and so I've been reading a biography of him. And, and when he was a boy, almost every song that was written, because America was, was the first great cultural export of America was the, the pop, pop music, you know, before, long before, you know, certainly before painting or sculpture. Almost every song of that period had the word old, O-L-D, in it. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. And if you go through a newspaper today, you know, with the ads and all that, the word that comes up most on the list is the word new. Huh. I would have thought love. Uh, well, I would, I would have hoped love. <laughs> Don't you find that that juxtaposition is so, like, like the relation of old and new. And so the Bard show, curiously enough, I think one, one of the motivations behind that was that you know, when I make the furniture, uh, that and it's freshly painted and it's you know, sparkling white and all that. And it's all in a pastels, colors. And then my object collection tends to be browns, dark browns, like Baroque colors. You know. The show puts together what, you know, in our cultural, American cultural experience, we have the old, you know, the thing that fascinates us by the old, because we're, we're not old, we're, we're really not, not old. But and we love the new as well, and so in the show, which sits there well now it's maybe two and a half months, another month to go, but people go in there and they'll respond to the furniture, you know, which is like the way they would respond to the new, you know, and other people go in there and respond to the objects, which brings in the old. I I thought you'd enjoy, I'm sure you know this, but in the review of your recent show at Bard in the New York Times, the writer Will Heinrich said this about interacting with the objects in your show. He says, I had become so used to meeting art through my eyes alone that I'd forgotten what an impoverished way that is to experience the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that would make you happy. <laughs> it made me happy. No, it's... The Bard show, it does try to get into one of the other senses, you know, other outside the visual into the tactile. There's no stopping there because you can listen to it and you can smell the objects, you know. And and I, I, you know, I would have no problem if somebody tried to taste them either. Richard Tuttle, thank you so much for making such profound work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Very welcome. Yeah, I've enjoyed this a lot. Richard Tuttle's work can be seen at the Pace Galleries in cities, including New York and London, and currently at the Bard Graduate Center in New York City. The book about his collection is called Richard Tuttle, What is the Object? This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland. What is happening in my mouth? My tongue is fizzing. It feels like Pop Rocks and lemonade. And now it's salty. And now it feels like I'm eating meat. Now I'm tasting cheese. I have no idea what's going on in my mouth. I'm Salim Rushmwala, And coming in June are 10 new episodes of Far Flung. 
Over the past few years, not many of us have been able to really travel and explore. One of the things that starts to happen is you can lose touch with that weird but wonderful feeling of being changed by new people and cultures. On Far Flung, we recapture some of that vibe. This season, we collaborate with local producers in 10 more locations around the world to understand ideas that flow from those places. You'll journey to very tiny suspension bridges 400 feet up in the air, uniting people living in the mountains of Nepal. It's one thing to see it in papers, read about it, see videos, but it's completely different thing to be there. It just goes on and on and on and on, and it becomes like smaller and smaller and almost disappears in the horizon other side. You'll hear tapes of Somali music that were hidden away, buried underground for years in an attempt to make sure that they are never forgotten. Meet journalists who've taken to city buses to deliver the news behind a cardboard cutout of a television set. And learn about how Iceland is struggling to strike a balance between keeping its language alive while still staying actively engaged with our constantly changing global culture. Sometimes it just comes out a big blur because I'm thinking in one language and speaking in another. It's, it gets kind of confusing sometimes. Come with us and see what the world is dreaming up as we all try to get that feeling of traveling and getting hit by a new idea at the same time. That's all part of a new season of Far Flung with me, Salim Rushmwala. Coming June 9th on Apple Podcasts and June 16th everywhere. Everywhere.